We're in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, if you're following uh, at the very bottom of chapter, uh, excuse me, at the bottom of page 12 and over through 13. I want to go back to where we started last time, or I should say where we ended last time as we introduced this. Uh, and it's nice that we have the board here today, so I want to make use of it. Um, chapter 8, actually chapter 8, 9, 10, and into 11 of 1 Corinthians deals with this matter of liberty, deals with this matter of freedom uh, that we have in Christ. Um, now, I, wanna, I want to really develop this today, uh, if you don't mind. And I mean, actually, even if you do mind, I'm still going to develop it. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I want to give you the illusion of participating <laughs> in the decision. Thank you. Um, I believe that we should, uh, we should define our liberty. And when I, maybe I shouldn't need to write this, but nonetheless I will. We're talking here about our liberty in Christ. We're not talking about political liberty or economic liberty. Not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the biblical idea, the biblical concept of liberty. As a matter of fact, in this chapter, Paul uses that uh, term liberty. So let's make sure that we are thinking biblically about this, all right? Let's make sure that we understand what really is at stake here. So what I've written here, there's several things I'd like to say, and I may need to use the back side of the board too, but... Uh, think with me about this for just a moment. Liberty in Christ is referring to the freedom that we have in the non-moral, or if you will, amoral, they kind of mean the same thing, areas of life. Now, do you understand what those two words mean? Non-moral or a, you put an A in front of a word, it negates it. So amoral areas of life. Let's put it another way. <coughs> freedom in the areas of our life to which God has not directly spoken. For example, uh, negatively speaking, freedom in Christ does not mean we have the freedom to commit murder. Why not? Because God has clearly spoken about that. Are you with me? Do you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, freedom in Christ does not mean we have the freedom to lie or misrepresent truth. Why? Because God has clearly spoken about that. Freedom in Christ does not mean we have the free freedom to covet. I mean, it could just go on and on. You just think of the Ten Commandments as a good summary of that. But so, do you follow what I'm saying? Now, two of you are shaking your head yes, and the rest of you are just like living statues. So, are you with me? Amen. All right. Now, let's let's try to apply this to to today. What would be in our lives in 2013? We live in the United States of America. What would be some of the areas of our lives that would illustrate the non-moral, all-moral areas of life? Uh, you gave the example of going and having a dinner at the casino last night. <laughs> oh, did I? Okay. Uh, <laughs> you were using the answer as the Yeah, well, that's something. <laughs> that's that's what it costs. So, your presence in questionable yeah. okay. food choices. Food choices. Uh, and you know, where we eat and so on. Somebody else had their hand up. Yes. What's your first name again? Wesley. Wesley, that's right. Sorry. Wesley, go ahead. Uh, are you referring to like in relation to how our society says it's okay? Or something that's not known possibly. Okay. Possibly, but just areas in our lives, uh, choices we need to make, mm -hmm. decisions we need to make. To which God has not directly spoken. Smoking, maybe. Smoking. Okay, use yeah. of the tobacco. One of the greatest preachers of England, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, smoked five, six cigars a day. It would be very hard to look at Spurgeon and say, Thou shalt not smoke, because he would say, Where's that in the Bible? <laughs> now, I'm, that's a little humorous, but that, that, would be, that would be one, definitely. What else? Now, there are, well, I'll get to that in a minute. What other areas? Broad areas. You don't have to be real specific. That which you um, consume in the form of entertainment. All right, yeah. good. Let's just use that word. Entertainment choices. And, I mean, in our culture in 2013, that's, that's enormous. 
said bride. I mean, it's just, there's so many things, but let's keep it that, because God, God does not speak anywhere about movies, for obvious reasons, because when, when the Bible was written, those things weren't an issue. But we'll, we'll keep it broad. Anything else? Politics. Politics. Okay. Yeah, again, it's so broad, it can mean right. voting, serving in public office, whom I vote for, or am I a member of a political party, but okay, we'll keep it that. Good. Are you either intimidated, afraid, I'm gonna, you're going to get shot down by I'm not, yes, I'm a not nice not person. <laughs> Think of anything else? How about leisure? Choices? Clothing? Um, well, so I'll put this down in a sense. Alcohol, alcohol beverages. Anything else? Television? spoken a lot about that. But um, how we, let's put it this way, how we spend money. Now hoarding it or coveting it or uh, being greedy, those kinds of things are spoken of in, in the Bible. All right, it, you know, it's, it's like I'm a dentist and I'm trying to pull teeth, so I'm going to quit. But these would be examples. Do you resonate with this? Are you with me? Because the Bible, God, in his word, has not specifically spoken. Now, if you lived before Christ, this would not be a freedom issue for you. Because there are kosher laws. Do you understand what I mean? There would, um, although this was not directly, this would be something, this, maybe not this, but this, 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 to some extent this, and very much this. All of those things were spoken of in the Levitical Code, to one degree or another. So it's really fascinating, and there's, that's a topic I don't particularly want to deal with, but we're talking about areas of our lives to which God's word has not directly spoken and which with which we have the responsibility as God's children by faith in his son to make wise choices in this area because in the Bible and Paul will talk about this liberty does not equal license you know what I mean by the word license Freedom to do whatever we want. Freedom to do whatever we want. There's a great word. It's a it's a, a, a it's an adjective. Licentious. Isn't that a great word? Licentious. Nobody ever talks like that. It's a great word, but it means you just do whatever you want. That's not what liberty means. So, what we're talking then about, secondly, when it comes to the issue of liberty, is responsible. wise exercise of our liberty in Christ. Now those those terms which are terms we'll want to talk briefly about what responsible, wise exercise of liberty is what the scriptures are screaming at us to do. So, what does that look like? Responsible, wise choice. Well, every time you make a choice, there is a consequence. It does not matter how innocuous or simple that choice is, there's a consequence to it. 
Would you agree with that? Yes. It doesn't matter. Whatever, however seemingly simple and mundane, a choice is going to have a consequence. The choice might be, can I sleep 10 minutes later this morning? Sure. What might be the consequence of that? Well, if I have a 6 a.m. meeting and it's 5.30 and I choose to sleep 10 minutes, I have the freedom to do that, but it's going to affect. Now, that's a ridiculous choice, but no way it isn't. So what the scriptures are saying to us is that when it comes to responsible, wise choices, always think of this. Every time you make a choice, there's a consequence. And so Paul is helping us in this passage, and it builds on what he was saying Last, um, well, not last chapter, chapter 6. All things are lawful for me. Paul agrees with that. But he says not everything profitable. All things are lawful for me. But he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Mm -hmm. That's not not a statement of uh, rigid legalism. That's a statement of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Good things are not always profitable. Or beneficial. Um, good things can become things that enslave us. Mm-hmm. I mean, Terry just got his his iPhone back. Now he apparently can live a year and four months without that. Most of us couldn't. <laughs> I'm taking what he said and what he said together. So anyway, um, and I have no idea what was going on why Fred had his iPhone, but in terms of that is something that's a good thing. It helps us to organize our life better. It helps us in terms of communication, connection. But that's something you can quickly become enslaved to. It can sort of dominate your life. And you just, you know, you're just I'm absolutely frenetic and obsessed with trying to keep up in your texts and your emails and all that stuff. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, when I was in leadership, I would never allow someone to be reading their texts or texting while they're in a meeting with me. That's disrespectful, first of all. It keeps them off track of what they should be focusing on. And in a couple of cases, I said, leave your iPhones and your Blackberries outside the office with my secretary. Simply because, I mean, people come in, you're having to be in there like this. You pretend like they don't, you don't see them. And that's, you cannot focus on what needs, I'm using it as an illustration. You have the freedom, yeah. So Paul is saying something to us here that in your exercise of liberty and freedom, need to be wise. You need to be responsible because it's going to have consequences. And the exercise of your liberty affects other people. For you, you must be responsible and wise. For you, you must remember that as you carry out, as you exercise your liberty in Christ in these non-moral or amoral areas of life, it can have an effect on other people. So they are three primary issues, three, I'm not sure I'm going to call them principles, but three primary areas or issues that the Bible raises for us when we think about liberty and freedom in Christ. Now, are you with me? Do you understand these foundation stones that I have just laid? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Um, I, you know, other than how it ties back to Romans, you know, I read this, especially in the Amplified, I read this a lot more uh, broadly than how you, the context you're putting it in kind of an amoral context. In one sense, it says... You know, God will not be mocked. You are not free from consequences, but you have a you have a freedom of action. Now, it, you know, Paul, you know, hits that issue in Romans. But I'm trying to see in this context in here, how are you re, um, restricting this to an amoral um, uh, conditions? I'm trying to see how it you mean the specifics of chapter 8 yeah well is it chapter 8 that you're relying on only or are you bringing in Romans or other oh. things to as a whole council of God well, I'm also, I, I'm also I bringing in I'm, all, I see that more broadly I'm also bringing in chapter 6 verses okay. 12 through 20 Thank which you. we studied a couple of weeks ago or months ago I think we were in that before I went to Israel so um, I don't have to answer your question <laughs> 
In other words, the the issue of liberty and freedom in Christ is a very broad topic. Let me let me approach it negatively for just a minute. Okay, let's go back to some of these examples we were using. Um, Andrew sitting to my right, and in um, in in this list, I no, that's not true, but just pretend it is. Uh, suppose I had made I worked with the guy who made that decision. But suppose when I was raising my kids, I made a decision to be no television in the house. Not watching it, we're not going to have a TV in our home. Mm-hmm. And we've made that choice as a family. Again, I didn't make that choice. We had a TV in our home. But, um, okay, and then what I say is, you know, I've come to the conviction that my conscience is now seared with this central tenet. Christians should not have television. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I have moved from a personal conviction where my conscience is now informed by that conviction and it determines how I'm going to live. But if I say Andrew has to do that too, what have I just done? I've universalized my convictions for everyone and made it a test of holiness. Mm -hmm. What's another word for that? Legalism. Legalism. You follow what I'm saying? That is just as dangerous... In my judgment, it is. That's just as dangerous as wanton, autonomous liberty. I can do whatever I want in Christ. Because I don't know the kinds of um, Christianity you guys grew up in, but I grew up in a very fundamentalist community, a fundamentalist church back in the 50s, that was incredibly legalistic. I mean, they just defined every area of life. And it was like casuistry. It was like, thou shalt not, and it was all, you know. And I can remember my youth group passed, they didn't have a real significant separate youth group ministry like often churches do today, but nonetheless it was, I can remember him saying, you have playing cards at home? Go home and burn them. Elvis was a big guy at that time. You have an Elvis record in your home? I want you to go and break it and have to throw it in the fire. Now, I understand why he was saying that. I know you, you, none of you are as old as I am, but in the 1950s, rock and roll was taking hold, and pastors were going ballistic with this, saying this is evil personified. This is the incarnation of Satan. You know, we got to get, I mean, it was just really, and it was so rigid, and they were universalizing convictions, and were just making Christianity into a performance-based faith. Mm-hmm. Perform right and God will find you acceptable. Now that's, that's a very unkind way of putting it, but that's often the consequence of a, a legalistic restrictive Christianity where I am universalizing my convictions for everybody else. And to Andrew, I'm saying, if you have a TV in your home, well, I'm not sure. You're obviously not walking with Christ. And I'm not even sure Andrew is a believer. Right. It's in place of Christ. It's yeah, and so it's, it becomes... You take the focus off of Christ and on you, yourself. Well, that's it. Then be the and I, the, that's right. And I therefore turn in, I turn on him in a sense, and his walk with Christ is now defined by my standards, mm-hmm. not these standards. That's why it's the non-moral, the honor, the areas to which God has not specifically spoken, which is an enormous area of our lives. But you see that, so we have the tendency to swing to one or the two extremes. The one extreme is legal, and I, I tell you, I am comfortable with legalism. Just tell me what I have to do, and I'll be fine. The other side is the wanton autonomy, license, I do whatever I want. Well, obviously, that's not a good way to live. So it's we don't like in the middle, we don't like the tension of every day needing to make wise decisions. Every day needing to make responsible decisions in these areas that I have learned are best for me. If I choose not to have a television, that's what seems best to work for me in terms of the goals I have based on what God wants me to do, et cetera, in my life at this point. But I don't have the right to bind his conscience on my conviction. 
I don't have that authority. It's wrong. I used to, when I mean, I've been in higher education all my life, and I've had countless students and many parents, even pastors, say, G- give me a list of movies this month that I should say they could watch. <laughs> that is not my responsibility to bind your conscience with my list. As a matter of fact, what you should do is you should say, what, what can we watch based on where we're at as a family? It's like, uh, it's maybe a ridiculous example, but I think it might apply. It's, okay, do I have the freedom in Christ to have a glass of wine? I don't know where you're at on that. But, yes, I think probably you do. Now, my own choice is I've chosen to be abstinent. I, there are a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it had to do with the leadership that I was in for a long time. But I just made that choice. But there's nothing in the Bible. I've been with many people in restaurants where they're getting a steak, they order a glass of wine. Okay, now... Just think about that for a minute. Okay, you have a guy who becomes an alcoholic. And he comes to faith in Christ. So now he's beginning to construct, in his dependence on the Lord, his walk with the Lord. What is wisdom? Does that mean have the freedom to get take a glass of wine? Yeah. But is that a wise, responsible thing for him to do? It really isn't. That's not a wise thing for him to do. And so you then give him that freedom to say, I really appreciate you guys, but if you don't mind, would it be all right if I move to another table? Would it be all right if my wife and I, we're not going to join you for dinner? It isn't because we don't love being with you, but we've come out of some things that's just really difficult. And do you know what Paul teaches us in this chapter? The rest of you should give up that right frame. That's what you should do. Not because, not because it's wrong, that it's evil, but you have such concern for that brother who's come out of that kind of lifestyle and how hard it is for him. Seeing you sit there eating his steak, but you're drinking a glass of wine or two, that is very difficult for him. As a matter of fact, he might, I'm going to take a glass before the evening's on. All of a sudden, he's getting back into his old habit. And so, and you, you, you nailed it. Love must temper the exercise of our freedom. You see, that's hard. Doesn't it always? Because as Americans, we want to demand our freedom. Mm-hmm. But what if he's a vegetarian? <laughs> I ain't giving up my steak. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that uh, being a vegetarian, unless it has something to do with health issues, Terry. I don't know. Or he used to be an uh, avid consumer of steak and did such a prodigious... Or he had amount. serious heart conditions and the, the, his cardiologist is saying, I don't want you to eat any red meat for the rest of your life. Are you so. drawing him into temptation or is it just a disagreement? Yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, that's a little different than alcohol. Yeah. You know, especially if he's got that yeah. issue. Well, I tell the students, this has nothing to do with freedom, but I tell the students, because when I'm on campus, I used to eat dining commons with them, I say, eat all the French fries and hamburgers and pizza now. Eat it all. Indulge! Yeah. And they're looking at my plate, carrots, <laughs> little tomatoes, a piece of cheese rolled, and, and bananas. That's my lunch. Isn't that exciting? So I just eat it all. Eat it all now. Because, you know, it's, it just indulges now because it's not going to last. All right, let's look at the text. Let's start now. Paul is dealing with something, again, as we've talked before. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols. We have to figure out what that means. Because remember, as I, I think I told you this when we started chapter 7, now concerning is a key marker in Corinthians from here on out. Paul is now answering a question they ask him. And they ask him something about meat sacrificed to idols. And it's like Jeopardy. We have the answer. We don't have the question. We have to figure out what the question is. It must have been something like this. Paul, now that we have become Christians, we've embraced Jesus Christ by faith. Can we go down to the idol temple and eat a meal there? 
See, in, in the Greco-Roman world, the, the cities of the Greco-Roman world, and Corinth was a big one, was, they were filled with temples. And those temples, there were two things going on in those temples. Particularly in Corinth, there were a couple of temples to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of carnal love. So you would, you would go in, you would make a sacrifice to her, and the priests would offer the sacrifice on an alt, the altar. Another portion of it would be uh, sold and used in the temple itself where you would eat a meal, and the remainder of it would be sold in the marketplace, what was called the Agora at that time. And then the second part of it, especially with Aphrodite, was temple prostitution. One source tells us there were 1,500 temple prostitutes in Corinth. So you have two things. You have eating the meat, which was part of the sacrifice, and then you have the, the temple prostitution. You go in and reenact. You can, you can figure that out, what, what's going on there. So they're saying to Paul, now, Paul, you taught us that everything is, is a good gift from a good God. You taught us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Can we go into that idol temple and eat a meal? It was a social gathering place. It was comparable to a restaurant today. You know what Paul's answer is? Yes, you can do that. But. Well, that's on the other side. Responsible, wise, exercise your freedom. So he's focusing first, presumably, on going into the idol temple and eating meat there. Like, as I said, it would be comparable to going to a restaurant today. Now, concerning things, some translations have meat sacrificed to idols. We know that we have all knowledge. Possibly that phrase, we have all knowledge, is another one of these Corinthian slogans that they used. Paul doesn't disagree with that. Now let's think for just a minute. What would they mean, or even what would Paul mean, because he doesn't disagree with it, what would they mean by knowledge? We have all knowledge. Knowledge about what? Knowledge is a content word. Do you understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the content of that knowledge? What do you think is in back of that? Right and wrong. Hmm? Okay, right and wrong. There's a morality, an ethical standard. What else? Relationship with Christ, that knowledge. Okay, the relationship with Christ, that knowledge. That there is a God. What else? What is the word for all there? I'm P-A-N. Your P-A-N. Mm-hmm. How about that the Lord created everything good? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Enjoy it. Good gifts from good God. The kosher laws are done. There are no restrictions on what you eat. That's what Paul taught them. Now, can you understand why they're asking that question? Now, the answer to that was yes. Okay, you got it? So Paul responds, Knowledge makes arrogance, but love edifies. Knowledge alone of your freedom in Christ can cultivate arrogance, pride, self-sufficiency, autonomy. But love edifies. Now we're getting close to a principle here. Love is the balance to liberty. Love tempers liberty. Love keeps liberty from becoming arrogant, autonomous, and self-indulgent. I'm trying to say the same thing about three or four different ways. So Paul is interjecting something here that is going to be very important for chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. The balance to liberty is love. Because... I am to exercise responsible, wise liberty because every choice I make has a consequence. And liberty, as I exercise it, does affect other people. So 
I don't think I have to write that up there. Well, maybe I will. So the key term that affects both of these is love. And as you know, that is agape there. That's that particularly Greek word, but uh, we talked about that many times, so that shouldn't be new to you. Oh, now we're only, you know, it's 22 minutes after 12, and we've only done one verse, but I've tried to lay the foundation for this. Because if you don't get, if you're not with me in these, these beginning comments, a lot of what's in 8, 9, 10, you're going to forget it. You're going to lose it. You have to keep coming back to these things. And so he's saying to us, let's principalize it again. In your exercise of liberty, knowledge alone is not sufficient. What you know, what you believe about God, about his creation, about who he is and about who you are, knowledge alone is not sufficient in your exercise of liberty. So he's saying love balances and tempers and helps us in our exercise of liberty. How so, Paul? Verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. What are you saying there, Paul? Paul is again demonstrating the insufficiency of knowledge, that is, what we understand about God and, and all of the things we've been talking about alone. Now, Verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. The word known there is a very, very special word in the Greek language. It's not know facts about. It's to know intimately and personally. So Paul is saying... This love that edifies begins with a relationship. A relationship with the living God. A relationship where you know him intimately, personally. Is that word? No. It's gnosko. Now are you with me? Mm-hmm. Now secondly... Verse 4 through 7. I want to read the entire thing. Therefore, concerning the things, excuse me, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Okay, now we're back to the issue that caused them to raise this question. Eating of things sacrificed to idols. The eating of meat in the temple that had been sacrificed to idols. Can I go in there? Paul says, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. Okay, there's a content of knowledge. It's very important. Idolatry. There's no such thing as an idol in the world. An idol is a piece of wood or stone. It's not alive. Nothing. And there's only one God. That's, that's important knowledge, isn't it? So how does that apply to the Corinthian situation? You're going down to that temple dedicated to Aphrodite, and there's a big statue of her in there. No power there. You know that that's nothing. That's just a piece of wood. Probably a stone. That's just a big, big hunk of stone that they carved. And that building around her, that's just nothing. Remember all the Old Testament things that you... When Israel is dealing with the Philistines or the Edomites or the Moabites, I mean, their gods are just pale and total insignificance to God. Remember when the Philistines had captured the Ark, Dagon falls over all the time. You have Elijah doing, uh, doing uh, battle with the Baals on Mount Carmel. What happens? Nothing. They cry out the Baal for hours and hours and hours and nothing happens and Elijah mocks them. And then Elijah calls on God and he sends the fire and consumes not only the sacrifice, but the altar and even the water around it. Who's the true God? See, Paul is saying, listen, the content of your knowledge is that idolatry is stupid. And there's only one true God. 
Verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, now what's that mean? Well, there is the supernatural. And there are gods and lords. That's a reference to the demonic hosts. Satan is called in 2 Corinthians 4 for the God of this age. Ephesians 6 teaches us, verse 10 and following, that we do battle against the powers in the high places. So Paul's acknowledging just because you don't believe in idolatry doesn't mean there isn't a supernatural world. But they're not reflected in these wooden stone things. Yet for us, verse 6, for us, those who have trusted Christ, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. There you clearly see the equality of the Father and Son. So Paul is just saying, here's the content, here's the knowledge I'm talking about. And that's profound, that's deep. Idolatry is foolishness. The world yet is filled with a supernatural threat to the living God. Yet our devotion and allegiance is to the one God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we exercise compassion for those in the world who don't have this relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Holy Spirit? Fred, that's such a such a broad question in, in many ways. I'm not sure how to specifically respond. I mean, I there I mean there are basically two only two ways to respond. So I'm gonna choose both of them. One is as Paul, excuse me, Peter says, always be ready and willing to give an account of the hope that is in you. So in other words, that doesn't necessarily mean that you walk into a a group of people who are thoroughly antagonistic to Christ and are worshiping others, whether they're tangible or intangible gods or whatever, and you hammer them over the hedge of the Bible. That's not what Peter's saying. He says, yet you are always ready to give an account. So, I mean, there's always that willingness and that readiness for the Erwin McManus calls those divine appointments where it's an opportunity for you to share and, and, and clearly articulate what you believe. But I think, to, particularly in our postmodern culture, the second is far, often far more effective. It is that consistent living out what you believe, that consistent uh, and deep-seated commitment to the, to the things that are important to God and that you are a person who manifests his values and his morals and his ethical standards because that stands out in this culture right. today. So, I mean, I, I, just, I don't know how else to answer your question because... I just want to get away from being judgmental. Yeah, it's well, that's it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And neither it's, one of those is being judgmental. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you, and that's why I always end our prayers on Wednesday with, Lord, enable us to represent you well. Because that is both in the words that we say as well as in the lifestyle that we live. And I do, I really believe today... Uh, now, that doesn't mean we don't use opportunities to speak about Christ, but I think today, perhaps more than ever in recent history, how we live speaks even more powerfully than what we say. Absolutely. And if you show that hope, yeah. living out your, yeah. own, your walk, yeah. then you know, sin is pleasurable for a season. Yeah. And we always know what the end of that is, and <clears> you're there when they come to the end of it, rather than when somebody's in the middle trying to yank them out. It's just like an alcoholic. They've got to hit a bottom. 
yeah. and then you're there and you're the authentic one, there is that joy. They see something different there. And then you I think so. I, you used a, a very important word in this culture today, authenticity. That is, I mean, there, honestly, and I'm sure you agree with this, there really isn't much authentic in our culture. It's so superficial, quickly passing. It's for the moment, you know what I mean? And yet, um, you and I make choices in how we live our lives that illustrate we're not buying into that. Okay? That gives an opportunity for people to watch, and, and it's, it's just so interesting. I remember when I was president, I was member downtown Rotary for, I don't know, 12 years or something like that. And I remember, because I don't know if you know what Rotary is, you, it was, we always met Wednesday, you eat lunch together and there's a speaker. That's the basic Rotary program. And you're sitting around eating for about a half hour or so, and uh, you, know, you get to know these people and you, know, you circulate, and that's one of the reasons I was a member, to get both myself as a leader of grace as well as to get to know people in the community. Well, anyway, I can't tell you, it must six, seven times we were having lunch and some guy tells a story. And it's an off-color story. Sometimes there's profanity. Sometimes it's really sexually explicit. And I remember, I think, six or seven times, they're about two-thirds of the way through the story. They finish the story. <gasps> Jim, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I shouldn't have said that. I didn't say anything. I didn't raise my hand. I didn't pull out the Bible. Thou shalt not. You know, I didn't do anything. I was just there. But, and I remember thinking when I would leave, you know, Lord, just being there caused that man to be uncomfortable about what he was saying. I didn't say anything. I, did my, I don't think the countenance of my face or anything changed. I think I'm used to that kind of stuff. It was just fascinating how people respond. Jim, I'm sorry I shouldn't have said that. Why? Because in some way I represented something to him that was very, very different, but also caused him to apologize. He was feeling uncomfortable about telling that off-color story. Is that representing Christ? I think it is. Now, there were other... Well, anyway. Look at verse 7, because now Paul applies all this. What's the content of our knowledge? Verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. What's the first word of verse 7? Oh. However. That's a word of contrast. Not all men have this knowledge. What knowledge? Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So you have two categories of people in verse 8, excuse me, verse 7. First, a general comment, not all men have this knowledge. They haven't come to that understanding yet. They don't know Christ. They don't understand the truths of verse 4 and 5 and 6. And then semicolon, but some. So now he's talking about people who've come to faith in Christ very, very recently. And what did they come out of? A culture and a lifestyle where they were constantly going into the idol temple. Constantly eating and probably going into the temple prostitute. And their conscience is weak and is thereby defiled. Now, we have three words there we have to talk about. Conscience, weak, and defiled. So category persons number one, those who don't yet understand the content of doctrinal truth that's in verse five, 4, 5, and 6. And then there's another category of people. But some who have come to faith out of that Context of idol worship and temple prostitution and all that stuff. Their conscience being weak. All right? Man, am I glad this board's here today. I think I'll raise this side. 
This is the coolest eraser <laughs> ever invented. Whoever decided to invent this eraser, it's not a typical eraser. Well, we know what to get you for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And this is the coolest. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get all these done, but if you don't mind me, I mean, you cannot understand these verses if we don't do this. So is it all right that I do this? I mean, we have to take this stuff apart, or you're reading, oh, okay, good, what does that mean? Let's talk about the word conscience. Now, not, um, not from the perspective necessarily of Jiminy Cricket, do you know what that is? If, when my daughter wow. was a little girl, she loved Pinocchio. Now, does that ring a bell? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And in Pinocchio, there's Jiminy Cricket. Who Jiminy Cricket was Pinocchio's conscience. It would sit on his shoulder. Or uh, This wasn't my kids. This was when I was young and watched cartoons in the black and white set with my dad, which was this big. I can remember cartoons where you have this figure and there's a little cloud... And there's a guy with a, a um, pitchfork, and he's got horns. And he's whispering in the guy's ear, telling him to do all these things. And then there's another guy, another cloud, and he's got a halo around him, and he's whispering, okay? That's conscience, good and bad. That's nothing to do with what the Bible thought. <laughs> the word conscience is used 31 times in the New Testament. That's all. It is not used in the Old Testament at all. There's no Hebrew word for conscience. So almost all of these 31 times are used by Paul. There's one or two uses of it in the book of Hebrews, and I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, so he didn't, that's whoever wrote that. But, so we have to understand, what does he mean? The conscience is weak. Um... I'm going to give you a thought about conscience, okay? Conscience are the set of convictions that we have about how we're going to live our life as it relates to these non-moral errors of life. As with liberty, so with conscience, it's not a justification for doing that which is evil. My conscience said I can do that. And your conscience was telling you a lie. Conscience is a set of convictions that you develop. Now those convictions that you develop are developed over time as you study and read and internalize the things of God revealed in his scriptures. That's why a very young believer, I'm talking about days or weeks or months, their conscience, their conscience is totally attuned to their old way of living. And for the most part, that conscience has rationalized everything they've done. So the conscience becomes like a thermometer in our lives. It becomes like a compass. I'm going to use different analogies here. A, a compass in our lives that the Holy Spirit begins to utilize. <clears throat> So, if conscience is the set of convictions that I develop in these non-moral areas of life, because again, we're not talking about the things that God's clearly dressed. You can, don't have the freedom to lie and covet commit adultery and murder and all of those things. You don't have that freedom. So a person who has a weak conscience, which is the word he used in verse 7, their conscience is weak. What does that mean? It's undeveloped. It's a conscience that's so informed by everything that was a part of their life before they put their faith in Christ. And they're struggling with all of that. And they know that if they go into an idol temple, 
they, still, they don't have that complete understanding of all verse 4, 5, 6 means. They are struggling with applying all of that, and their spiritual life is so fragile. Now, if they see you go into that other temple and sit down with your wife and eat that meal, and then they go in, you're enjoying the meat. It's a good steak. Medium well. They go in, and two weeks ago, they were in that same temple, engaging in the worship of Aphrodite, and then we're done with the sacrifice, went into the temple prostitutes. That's a weak conscience. What's the best thing for them to do? Stay as far away from that place as they possibly could. But they see you going in there. And so Paul says, this person, this weak, it's not referring to a person who's an unbeliever, it's a person who's made their decision of faith. But their conscience is undeveloped, it's uninformed by God's word, it hasn't become a mature, well-developed conscience. I'm going to use another word in another chapter, the strong conscience. And so Paul is saying, you know, in that kind of a situation, I erased it, but the third principle, the exercise of your liberty affects other people. And Paul is alerting us. Your person has just come to faith. That's a weak, undeveloped conscience. Then, as they see you exercise your liberty, it could be absolutely devastating for them in their walk with Christ. So what's the conclusion? You stay away from the idol temple too. That's the wise thing for you, because your liberty, as you exercise it, can affect others. And particularly those with a weak conscience. And so, going back to verse 1, love edifies. Love tempers and balances my liberty. So in that kind of a context, what's the loving thing for me to do? Surrender my freedom. Give up my freedom. Because love, agape, is an other-centered approach to life. Not pounding the table and say, but I have a right to go in there. You do. But that is not the only principle that governs the exercise of your liberty. Now you see, this is why living our freedom in Christ, exercising our liberty in Christ, creates some tension, doesn't it? That's living with the tension in a fallen, broken world. That's why people say, just tell me what I have to do. I don't want to, ex- I don't want to live with this tension. Just tell me what I should do. Should I go to the idol temple? Which is what they were asking him. And see, Paul, Paul doesn't answer yes or no. That's not how he answers the question. He informs them of the doctrinal position that he taught them, the knowledge they have. But you know, knowledge alone is not sufficient in the exercise of your liberty. Love is what edifies. Okay, Paul, what do you mean? All right, I was sharing now. What about the guy who's just come to faith? And he's accustomed to going to the idol temple. He sees you going in. You see what he's doing? So he doesn't answer it yes or no. He lays out the entire scenario of living with the tension of our freedom and our rights in Christ in a fallen, broken world. What do I do that's loving for my brother who's just come to faith? I don't want to give up my rights. I don't want to do that. After all, it's only a 695... What's the... Buffet, buffet. I couldn't think of the word, buffet. I was thinking it's smorgasbord, but that's Swedish, so I couldn't. Anyway, thank you. Uh, so, anyway, do you, are you with me? Do you understand what Paul's doing here? I mean, it's really, it's, just tell us yes or no. That's not what he does. I'm yelling here. <laughs> Paul Hogan's going to come over. You cannot come into this room. You're yelling. Uh, yeah, what's interesting about my experience was that literally days within making that decision and going through some of the transformation that was going on very, very, very early in my life. I found it interesting because before I really knew 
some of them. I didn't I hadn't had a chance to really get into scripture and <clears throat> learn some of the scriptural knowledge. Uh, but I look back and I can remember things that that Cam came up that happened that immediately my sense of conviction was there that never would have been before. Mm. But the, the verbiage that I used mm-hmm. before that mm-hmm. started to fall off within days mm-hmm. was gone out of my vocabulary. I remember sitting there literally days after giving my life Lord and watching a movie mm. and having a scene come on there and can remember thinking somebody was actually saying it behind me saying, mm. well, they didn't have to put there was a nude scene mm. or something that popped mm-hmm. on the screen. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting to me how that plays into it mm-hmm. so early in the game that it, all of a sudden those things that seemed so normal. Now, it wasn't a complete transformation, and I can see where other issues took time Absolutely. to get Absolutely. there, mature to get there. But it was interesting Absolutely. to me to see the sensitivity that happened mm-hmm. almost immediately. The Holy Spirit begins. The Holy Spirit begins to use conscience to accomplish Now, I don't have time to go into this because it doesn't directly relate to this, and we're getting close to um, being done this morning in our class. But this is, um, as so much of our study of 1 Corinthians, this is extremely relevant stuff, isn't it? Now, the answer to that is yes. I mean, this is extremely relevant stuff because this is the tension that we feel. This is not, it's one of the things that God did when he made the decision that when he, when, when he gives us life in Christ, he doesn't take us home. He leaves us here to represent him. And it gets back to some of the things Fred raised you know, about uh, 20, 25 minutes ago about how do we, in effect, represent the Lord well in, th- in, in dealing with people who don't know him or even who have just come to know him. That's what Paul's addressing here. And if you're like me, as a typical American, your initial response is, I have my rights, and I want to exercise my rights. And even more so than the person in the Greco-Roman world, we have to step back and say, yes, but that's not the only issue. The issue is, how does my exercising of my freedom and, and, and liberty in Christ affect me, and how does it affect others? And that's that's... We, we, we don't want it to affect others. <laughs> I don't want to care about others. But no, that's, that's wrong. You have to begin to care about others. And immediately you start to, you've heard me say this before, and Terry, an example of that. You come to faith in Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden you start to feel uncomfortable about things that you never felt uncomfortable with before. There is no greater evidence of God working in your life than that, that you're beginning to feel uncomfortable about things. That's good. And you say, well, I'm struggling with things. Good, because before you came to faith in Christ, you weren't struggling too much. And that's the good thing. That's the, it's the greatest evidence there is that transformation is occurring. That things that never bothered you before are starting to make you uncomfortable. All right? It's 10 of i got to quit. Tomorrow, we're going to pick up with verse 8. Or actually, it won't be tomorrow. It'll be next Wednesday. We're going to pick up with verse 8. And it'll probably take us a good chunk of next hour to get through to verse 13. And then we're going to look at chapter 9. Because Paul brings to the witness stand someone who gave up his rights for the sake of others. Who do you think that is? It's Paul himself. He lists his three rights as an apostle. These are my rights. These are my, these are. And he says, but you know, I've learned to give them up for the sake of others. Lord, we're thankful for this scripture. Uh, this teaches us in an area of our lives that we face every single day, certainly almost every single hour. How do we exercise our liberty and freedom in Christ? In entertainment choices? in uh, food and restaurant choices and beverage choices and leisure time choices and books we read just go on and on and on areas to which you have not directly spoken and yet you're asking us in our freedom in Christ kosher laws are completed all of the regulations that were part of the liturgical code they're, they're completed in Christ so it's important for us now to exercise the wisdom that comes from saturating our minds and hearts with your word and the Holy Spirit who indwells us 
develop a mature set of convictions that can guide us and be used by the Spirit to live a life that's honoring to you in these areas of life to which you've not directly spoken, to learn what is profitable and to stay away from those things that can enslave us, can master us, even good things. That takes a lot of wisdom, it takes a lot of time, and there's tension. And so often we don't want to live with any of that. Just tell me what to do. But, Lord, that uh, is not what you're calling us to do. You're calling us to be wise, discerning, discretionary people who walk with you in dependence on your spirit and who are developing a conscience that's honoring to you. We are in the middle of this. We have a lot more to discuss. But bless it, use it, help us. If I said anything that was not of your spirit, would you dismiss that from our minds, but help us to focus instead on that which is of your spirit, which honors you. Help these men, because they're dispersed all over this metro area, help them to represent you well. Because when they see, when people see them, they see Christ. So we meet, we want to represent him well in all that we say and do. We ask in your son's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.